Emily, that was a blessing. Appreciate that so very much. We are weak, but he is strong. John chapter number 9. John chapter number 9. We have been studying through the book of John for the last uh, several months, really. And it never ceases to uh, amaze me how Christ handles the opposition and handles the persecution, the antagonism uh, toward his ministry and toward his preaching of the the truth. And he so masterfully uh, deals with each and every issue. And yet he retains his compassion, his love, his mercy, and and giving them the truth and giving those who uh, hate us and giving those who persecute us and giving them the truth, we are actually loving them. Uh, It's sometimes uh, hard for us to to comprehend how uh, the truth is is loving because our world has redefined and mystified the the definition of love and ripped it out of its biblical context and meaning. And and so now to give someone the truth, to to tell them the truth, to declare the realities of of God and his word and his creation uh, to our world now, today, it seems that it's called hate and hate speech and intolerance. And uh, yet we see the example of Jesus Christ as he deals with these religious leaders, as he deals with this group called the Jews who are antagonistic to him. He continues to declare the truth. He continues to do so with love and with compassion. And we'll see that again here in John chapter 9. We'll see Jesus' compassion. Right away we see in verse number 1 of John 9, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So already we see in that first century, in the context of that day, it was common for people to believe that if there was an illness or there was a disease, that it was because of that person's sin or possibly the parents who had caused their child to be born with this disability or this disease or this defect. So it had to be the direct result of that person's sin or that person's parents. That was a commonly held belief. But Jesus deals with that in verse 3. And then we go down to verse number 6, verses 3 through 5, Jesus deals with that. But in verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. God healed Jesus Christ, being God, healed the blind man. This was an incredible, awesome miracle. It showed Jesus' compassion. His physical condition, the physical condition of the blind man, illustrated his spiritual condition. And it would serve as an illustration or a backdrop for Jesus' sermon and his message to the religious leaders who were spiritually blind, but physically could see. This blind man was physically blind, but we'll see later in John 9 down to verse 38 that he spiritually and physically earlier, physically became able to see. But in verse 38, we also see that he spiritually was given sight. 
as he trusted Christ as his Savior. We see Jesus' compassion. He spat on the ground. He made the clay, and he put that clay on the eyes of the blind man. It, it even makes us think of Genesis 2 and verse number 7, where God made man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, and he became a living soul. Surely God, who created the universe, who created man from the dust of the ground, surely he could take the dust of the ground, the dirt, the soil, and make that man's eyes see. Give him new eyes. Enable him to see. A man who had never seen anything. He was born blind. Matthew 9, Jesus healed two blind men by touching their eyes. In Mark 8, he also used his, his, his spit or spittle to place on that blind man's eyes. Here he made clay and then placed it on the man's eyes. Why did Jesus use the clay? Commentators disagree and some agree and they try to explain and I don't want to get too overly dogmatic, but I think it just goes to show that God can heal in various ways. He can choose to just speak the word and heal. He can use something in between. He can use the clay from the ground, the dirt of the ground. He can use a little bit of his, his own saliva. He can just use the, the touch of his fingers. We just see that the, 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 the method can change, but the person, the power behind that method, the, 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 the act of God, the miraculous supernatural act of God, that source of that power doesn't change though God may use a, a different method. Now again, I don't want to be overly dogmatic, but I, I, I think that this does speak to some way of the use of, of medicine. Uh, medicine God has used as a go-between. Now I think that medicine is not a, a cure-all. We're all still going to die. And there's arguments over medicines and various ways that we use medicine and how much medicine, and we have to be discerning. We know that the medical community is... Not God, and can't always be trusted. Uh, we've learned that a lot probably over the last couple of years, that even the medical community can be lying to us. So we, we have to be discerning. We, we have to trust God. We have to believe His Word. We have to be led of the Lord, and we have to apply His Word, and we have to follow our conscience that is biblically educated. But uh, I don't, again, I don't want to get too carried away here, but there, there seems to be some reference to the fact that we can, with God's permission, with God's providential care, we can use a, a, a go-between like, like medicine. We're thankful for uh, the, the, the modern medicines, and we're thankful for surgeries and different medical techniques uh, that, uh, in some cases, have allowed some of us to, to still live. Uh, we wouldn't be alive. In, in some of our cases, we've been through some major medical issues, and, and we wouldn't be alive. Some of us have spent many more months and years and weeks with loved ones who, if it hadn't been for some medical intervention, we wouldn't have had that additional time with them. So God does use medicine, but it doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't be discerning. It doesn't mean that we can't uh, use uh, biblical judgment and, and, and apply a worldview even to, to medicine. Of course we should. But I do think it's interesting that Jesus uses the clay, and he uses a go-between, and it just reminds us again of the power of God. Though there might be different methods, 
It is still the power of God. It was a supernatural work. It was a miracle of God that this blind man was able to see. Now, there was no surgery in that day. There was no medical technique. There was no procedure. There was no optometrist or ophthalmologist or eye surgeon who was used to perform some sort of surgery. It was clearly a miraculous act of God from the heart of Christ and his compassion. And notice that this this blind man had to act upon his faith. He had to act with a certain degree of of faith in order to be fully healed. Verse number 7 says that he was to go, Jesus told him, to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent, and then the man went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Kind of similar to the Old Testament general Naaman, who was told to go to the Jordan River, and he had to follow through in his belief. He had to demonstrate, he had to give evidence that he believed by going and dunking in the Jordan River. Now, here is a blind man who is told to go to the pool of Siloam. And we see that this man, in, in order to demonstrate his faith, in order to demonstrate that he believed, he had to follow through with the command. He had to obey the command and wash in the pool of Siloam. He had to believe Jesus, and he demonstrated that faith by going and washing in the pool of water. And when he did so, he was healed. Now, we know that he did not truly get saved until verse 38, where he worshiped the Lord. He declared, I believe, with his mouth, he made confession unto salvation. But it does help us understand how our faith has to be active. Our faith, I often say it, puts on walking shoes or work boots or hiking boots in some cases. And sometimes our faith has to put on running shoes because we have to run from sin. I like the old Patch the Pirate song, Put on your running shoes. Put on your running shoes, mate. Because you have to run sometimes from sin, like Joseph, who had to put on his running shoes and he left his outer garment as Potiphar's wife tried to lead him into sin and adultery. And he had to put on his running shoes. In faith, he believed God. And he ran from sin. Our faith has evidence. James chapter 2, often a misunderstood passage. But faith without works is dead, James 2 and verse 20 says. So our faith is lived out. This again comes where the rubber meets the road, comes into conflict with our culture. Because our politics and our government and our culture says You can worship, but keep it in these four walls of your church. Don't bring your faith out into the public square. Don't bring your faith into the workplace. Don't bring your faith into the place of recreation. Don't bring your faith out into the the world. You can do whatever you want to do within reason within these four walls, but your religious freedom ends when you walk out the door. And that's not at all the way God says that we are to live out our faith. We are to take our faith. Yes, we worship. 
and we worship in faith, and we sang praises to the Lord, and we offered sacrifices of praise, and hopefully we did so with pure, uh, with a, with, with pure hands and, and a pure heart this morning. And hopefully we are, are listening, and we are applying the Word of God with pure hands and a pure heart this morning, as the Word of God is preached. But we are to not just sit here and to soak it all up and to worship together and then leave this place and go just deny or live in a neutral way or to just sort of hide our light, our, our candle. No, we're to be the salt, we're to be lights. We are to go out into this world and we're to live out our faith. It affects our decisions in our workplaces and our places of recreation. It affects our decisions in our family and our homes. It affects even how we drive down the road. It affects what we watch on TV and what we listen to. It affects our phone use. Our faith must be active. It applies to every area of life. Just as that blind man had to go and he had to wash in the pool of Siloam, our faith has to be lived out has to be demonstrated in obedience and faithfulness to the Word of God. So we see Jesus' compassion. But secondly, this morning, we see the disciples' curiosity. The disciples' curiosity. That brings us back to verse number 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, this was in that day, in those Bible times in the first century, there was, and it's even to some degree true today among some groups of people, that a physical disease, a physical problem, uh, even an injury, but some disability, it's the direct result of that person's sin. That person's sin caused that physical problem, caused that disease, caused that physical defect. That's what the disciples are referencing in verse number 2. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Surely, Jesus, this man's parents did something wrong in their life, and God is judging them for their sin by having their child born blind. Now, this, this is something that Christ, in, verse numbers, in verses 3 through 5, he, he dismisses this idea. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God has a way of overruling and overcoming. God has a way of bringing glory to himself through these physical needs and sufferings and disabilities and defects. See, this is something, again, that's lost to some degree on our culture where a abortion industry will say that preborn life, if there is a sign of a defect, then that preborn child needs to be murdered in the mother's womb. That child should not be brought into the world with that disability or that defect. So you have a nation, I believe it's uh, Iceland or, or Greenland, that particular country said they had eradicated Down syndrome from their nation. When really all they had done is they had done a prenatal test 
which is not very accurate, because I remember when our children were born, I remember the doctor, the pediatrician, the first, when Emily, when Kelly was pregnant with Emily, the doctor asked us about this prenatal test, and we declared who we were as Christians, and you can do the test, but we're not going to, it's not going to matter to us, because whether the test comes back positive for Down syndrome or not, our child is going to be born, and we're going to love them, because this child is made in the image of God. But in that country of Greenland or Iceland, I forget which one, they supposedly, and they declared it, and it was headlines, they had eradicated Down syndrome from the country. When really what they had done is every time there was a positive test for Down syndrome in the, neo, in the prenatal testing, they had murdered that baby. That baby was marked and murdered in the mother's womb. But they declared that they had eradicated Down syndrome, saying that that Down syndrome child did not deserve to live. It would be a leech on society. It would be too hard on the parents. And Jesus deals with that. I know he's dealing with a man born blind. But he speaks in, even into the 21st century, through the inspiration, the preservation of his word, he speaks to this. That even a child with a defect deserves to be born, deserves to live, and deserves our compassion, and deserves to be treated with dignity. And there are many, many, many parents who have special needs children, who give glory to God, and they would never want it to be different. I've met some of them who love their children. I worked with a youth pastor whose daughter, or excuse me, his sister, excuse me, his sister was a, uh, a child with Down syndrome. And he loved his sister, and he gave testimony to the joy that she brought to their family. And here's a man that was born blind, and for some in that day, and even today, that child, that person, is the outcast of society. This man would have been a beggar all his life. There were, there were no welfare systems. There were no social support systems. There was no ADA Disabilities Act. He was a beggar. That's how he had to live. His own parents didn't know how to support him, how to take care of him. But Jesus loved him. Jesus healed him. And he said, this man was born blind that God might be glorified. And Jesus would do an incredible miracle here. And have an incredible lesson. And preach an incredible, amazing sermon. With this as the backdrop. The disciples were curious. They had been caught up in some of the, the cultural teachings. They had been, they, they misunderstood even scripture, even Old Testament truth, even the, the teaching of the word of God regarding the, the, the dignity of each human being and each person being made in the image of God and misunderstanding the effects of sin and, and why sin is in the world and how it affects the world. They even had accepted some of the cultural teachings and had misunderstood and they were curious who had sinned. This man or his parents that he was born blind. But Jesus dismisses that very clearly in verse number 3. So Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying that all sickness and physical handicap and handicaps, he's not saying that all sickness and, and physical handicaps are for the same reason or the same cause. Okay? There, there are, there, there's going to be the glory of God 
in every person's life, in the fact that each individual is made in the image of God and made with dignity, there is an element of God's glory in every person in that they are made in God's image, made in, with dignity. But what does that say then about sickness? What does that say then about illness? How do we deal with that? We are in a sin-cursed world. We are in a world today where we deal with sickness, we deal with disease, we, we deal with disabilities, we deal with physical handicaps. And this is a, a question that the world is struggling with, and sometimes we as Christians, it's hard for us to give an answer. Why is there all this suffering? Why are all these bad things happening? Why is all there this disease? And ultimately, we know the answer, but it's hard for us to explain in a world, in a culture that is trampling upon the blood of Christ and trampling upon the truth and pushing away the truth. But Jesus really helps us in this passage understand that though there is disease and there is sickness, God has a way of overcoming and bringing glory to himself through it. But we have to apply the truth of the word of God to these circumstances, to these individuals. We have to look at these situations. We have to look at the evil, look at the sin, and look at the difficulties in this world through a biblical lens. So why is there sin or death or sickness at all? It's because of sin. In a general sense. There is sickness, there is physical suffering, there is disease, there is blindness and other physical disabilities because we live in a sin-cursed world. We cannot just deny that fact. There would not be death, there would not be suffering, there would not be disease and sickness had sin not entered into the world. So we have to, first of all, acknowledge that fact. And Jesus is acknowledging that. He's not saying in verse number three that there was never any cause of this disease, of this defect, because of sin. Of course, sin in general is the cause because without, because if it weren't for sin, then, then man wouldn't die. Sin is ultimately the cause. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and because of sin there is death. But Jesus is simply saying that not all sickness, not all physical illness is the direct result of a sinful choice. Sin in general is the cause. But what about the specific circumstance? The specific situation? This man, nor his parents, had sinned to cause this man to be born blind. But there are some in religious circles, and I'm just going to go ahead and say the charismatic health, wealth, and prosperity gospel will say that the suffering that you have in your life is because of your lack of faith, because of your sin. And there is a teaching, and I, and I, and I like the sound of music, okay? I watch the sound of music at least once every year, usually around Christmas time. But Julie Andrews sings a song in The Sound of Music, and she says something along the lines of, as she's falling in love with whatever his name, she is say, she's saying, I must have done something good. 
So for me to have these good things happen to me, for me to fall in love with this handsome man, to have all these good things, it must be because I did something good in my childhood. And she sings the little song. And we can fall into this mindset if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we can fall into this almost a superstitious health, wealth, and prosperity gospel mindset that God is this judge looking out, and every time we mess up, he can't wait to zap us. He can't wait to, okay, now I'm going I'm to come up with this disease. I'm going to come up with this illness. I'm going to come up with this suffering. And see, there, there was this mindset that this man was born blind because the parents had sinned, or somehow, how could he have sinned if he was born blind? And so how, how do we deal with this issue of sin? How do we deal with this issue of, of physical suffering, of death? Well, God gives us the answer. Christ gives us the answer. The Word of God gives us the answer. God had a purpose. God had a plan. Not all sickness and disease and illness is the direct result of an individual sin. But we have to understand that sin in general is the cause. So in that, God provided a redemption plan. He provided a prescription. And I don't want to get carried away here and to, to get mis, misunderstood about this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel stuff. But this mindset that we have to have enough faith if we just make enough promise to give enough money to do enough good things, then God will bless us with health, wealth, and prosperity. It is a dangerous theology. It is a dangerous mindset. And it has afflicted and it has permeated much of American religion and religiosity. And there are word faith preachers that are extremely popular that have thousands of people attending their services who are claiming, naming and claiming. And they're flying their private jets and they have their fleet of fancy cars and they're wearing their fancy suits and they have their $1,000 wardrobes, multi-thousand dollar wardrobes. And they're saying, see, if you want to have the blessing of God like I do, then you have to give to me. And there was a headline recently of a preacher who got up and said, you all are, you all are not living in faith. I'm not dressing nicely enough. I'm not driving enough nice cars. I don't have a big enough house because you all are not giving enough. You all are not exercising your faith enough. If you just had more faith, if you just lived more like the Lord, you would be giving more and I would have more stuff. I would be able to live on a higher status, a higher level. Shame on that man. He got exposed. He was on social media and people were playing his, his, his statement. But Jesus is addressing some of that right here in verse number 3 of John 9. We have to acknowledge that sin has caused suffering. Sin has caused physical pain. Sin has caused ultimately death. But God does not judge every single sin in general with specific illnesses, specific diseases, and specific items of suffering. 
Now, to balance this out, we have to understand that there are times where our sinful choices do cause direct physical suffering. I mentioned this on Wednesday night, and I don't want to get too carried away, but we have in the news headlines a disease called monkeypox. And it is primarily related to specific types of sinful, immoral behavior. It is. By large percentages, it is afflicting people conducting themselves in an immoral, reprobate way. There are times where people booze it up, get behind the wheel of a car, and crash into a tree. There is physical suffering, even death. That's the direct result of a sinful choice. There are all kinds of consequences for sinful choices that we make. That's part of the law of sowing and reaping. But Jesus is saying, this blind man, neither he nor his parents committed a specific sin that caused this man to be born blind. We understand that there are sometimes physical and psychological consequences for sin and the guilt of sin. We understand that generally speaking, there is physical pain, there is suffering, there is difficulties in life because we live in a sin-cursed world, because sin has entered into the world. And even creation groans, Romans 8 tells us, and is awaiting the redemption day. So we need to come back to what the Bible says. That there is an answer for sin. There is a hope in the midst of suffering. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is bringing the disciples and bringing the religious leaders to this place where they must look to Him for the answers. Man has been looking for all the answers in his human reason, in his good works, in his selfish acts, in his charitable deeds. And Jesus is saying, I am the answer. There is a reason I have allowed this man to be born blind. And trust me, I am going to bring glory to God through something that man would say is an unredeemable evil, scourge, blindness. Jesus said God can still receive the glory even in what man would say is a horrible scourge. And yes, we understand blindness is a severe difficulty. We understand, yes, blindness is a severe disability. But we can look at the disabilities, we can look at the sufferings, we can look at the different issues That man is trying to find an answer for, and we can say God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God can be glorified. We have a ministry right here at our church, a deaf ministry. And God is opening doors. We're, we're, Lord willing, going to be able to even host an additional uh, Bible study for the, the deaf ministry and for the deaf community here. God has a purpose and a plan. As hard as it is, there are incredible difficulties. Heather and I have talked in great length. But it allows us to have a burden and to show the compassion of Jesus Christ for people in their times of suffering and to give them the gospel. 
I'm thankful there are some young people who are already starting to learn, and there are people in our church who are burdened for the hearing impaired. I'm thankful that God has put us in a place of opportunity with a ministry such as this. I'm thankful for our ministry that we had at our, our, previous, our, our previous ministry, where, by the grace of God, Kelly and I were able to start a, a special education program for our little Christian school. And we saw God do incredible things. We're, we're working with a public school system that, by and large, was antagonistic toward our little Christian school. But God put a liaison between the public school district and our little Christian school, and she was a born-again believer. And then God gave us special education teachers who worked with our little Christian school, and they were all born-again believers. And we would sit in meetings, and we would have conferences, and they would say, this is off the record. And then we'd talk about Jesus. We'd talk about God. And we'd talk about the Lord and what he's doing in our lives. And we were seeing boys and girls reached with the gospel, reached with the word of God through a special education program that was almost unheard of because we were burdened for these children with special needs. God brings glory. Our physical sufferings have a purpose. Our physical needs teach us to look to the Lord. They teach us to look to Him. How many times have it, has it been a time of physical sickness, physical need, that God has put us in a place where we cry out to Him and say, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. See, there are purposes and there are plans, even in the physical needs of life, that teach us to trust Him, that teach us to depend upon Him. And I don't know for sure, but I wonder if this man hadn't been born blind, would he have ever truly gotten saved? It mattered more that this man received spiritual sights, that he was born again, that he received spiritual sights, than that he ever received physical sight. But we have such a merciful God and such a gracious Savior that he not only healed him physically, but he brought him to a place of repentance and faith. And the man received physical sights, and he also received spiritual sights. And then Jesus will later deal with the religious leaders who were physically able to see. They had physical sight, but they were spiritually blind. Jesus goes on in verse number four. We've seen Jesus' compassion, and we've seen the disciples' curiosity. But we also see here Christ in his work of shedding the light of the gospel and fulfilling the will of God. Verse number four, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is, with his compassion, answering the disciples' curiosity, their question. Jesus sheds light on this subject and he 
speaks to the will of God and he declares in an I am statement, one that we've already seen back in John 8 in verse number 12, I am the light of the world. And he draws a contrast between night and day here. Day is the time that God ordained for Jesus to fulfill his will here on the earth. Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me. Jesus is fully committed to doing the will of God. And we've talked about that already in here. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. The disciples are questioning Jesus. Why are you talking to this Samaritan woman? Don't you have other... The disciples are like, Jesus, don't you have other things to do? Don't you have better things to do? And Jesus says, my meat, my satisfaction, my fulfillment is to do the will of him that sent me. And here we see Jesus, again, reflecting on that same truth. I am here, he is saying, I must work the works of him that sent me. Oh, that we as believers would have that laser-like commitment to obedience to the will of God. Oh, that we had the passion for obedience to the word of God and to the fulfillment of his will. I say it all the time, but it burdens me at the complacency of Christianity, at the lack of urgency, at the, 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 the insincerity and the casualness in which we approach the Word of God and Christ in service for Him, the lack of commitment, the, the, the lack of, of desire. We have more passion, more energy, more money, more interest in so many other things than we do for the Lord and for His work and for His service. Jesus was consumed with doing the will of God, and he said, there is only a period of time that I have here on this earth, and I'm going to use every bit of this time, this time of day, I'm going to use for the Lord to fulfill his will. And then he contrasts that with night. He said, but the night cometh when no man can work. Night speaks to the limit that God has set for us. In other words, there is going to be a time when we are facing the reality of death. There is going to come a time where we are no longer able to serve, to physically work, to do. What are we going to do with the time that God has given us? The night is coming. We don't know when that may be. We may walk out from here, get in our car, and drive across the road, and there might be someone who comes across the center line, and we go into eternity. One of the United States representatives from Indiana, along with two of her assistants, I think her name was Janet Walorski. Eric Miller knew her well, spoke of her. I heard him speak her name, had a good relationship with her. Born-again believer from what we understand conservative politician, along with two of her assistants, went into eternity as they went across the center line on a state road, on a state highway. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus is speaking with conviction here. I am here to do the will of the Father. You have a period of time where you also are to be doing the will of the Father. Night cometh. We don't know when our time is over. We might be young, we might be 
older, but whatever it might be, there is a limited amount of time. What are we going to do for the Lord? I believe it was Jim Elliott. I believe it was Jim Elliott who made the, the, the statement. I'm not going to probably quote it correctly. I, I didn't put it in my notes. I was thinking of it earlier. He is no fool who gains what he cannot keep or loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I believe Jim Elliott was the one who made that statement. And so many times we spend so much time and energy and money and emphasis on trying to gain what we will lose instead of working to lose for temporary purposes and gain for eternity. We're working so hard to gain the temporary and losing the eternal. When we should be working hard to gain the eternal and lose the temporary. And Jesus says this blind man is a lesson for us. Is a backdrop to a powerful sermon that's going to take us a few weeks to go through in chapter 9. But it's an incredible illustration of the purposes of God, the plan of God, and how we can look to Christ and He can receive the glory. And we have a job to do for the Lord in the time that He has allotted to us. And we need to be urgent. And we need to fulfill the will of God, whatever that is in our lives. When we're young, we often look at the will of God and we see it as some long distance cloud out there, mist and fog. And Lord, how am I ever going to get there? When Christ wants us to just look each day at each stepping stone of obedience and let him take care of the rest. The day has come, but the night is coming. What are we going to do with what God has given us right now to live in obedience and to fulfill the will of God for our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, that teaches us, that instructs us, that helps us. As you healed a blind man, who struggled with spiritual sight, though he had a physical defect, a physical disability. Lord, you wanted him to have spiritual sight. And in your compassion, you healed him physically and illustrated for us our need for compassion, but Lord, most importantly, our need for spiritual sight and for living the will of God, living out the will of God for our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose and the plan that you have, even in our midst of suffering, in which we can, by looking to you, glorify your name. And Lord, I pray that you will work in hearts, even this morning, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, they cannot fulfill the will of God because they haven't even taken the first step of obedience by repenting of their sin and putting their faith and trust in you and obeying the command to repent and to trust and to believe. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in hearts, that if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, that, Lord, today will be the day of salvation.